From Grooveview Studios in Columbus, Ohio, this is Getting the Brand Back Together, a podcast exploring the interdisciplinary art of banding, branding, and business building. Rock and roll relic, poet, writer, and brandist, I'm your host, Brad Sircone. Let me give you some title tracks here. Long Time Loving You, People Like You, Fallen Timbers, Doing It Right, Making a Living Been Killing Me, The First Time, Day by Day, Start It All Over. All singles charted on either Billboard Pop and and or country charts all in the 80s. And then in 2012, there was a top 50 Music Row country chart hit with Bartender. All of that coming from our much welcome guest and a friend of mine that I haven't seen in years, John Schwab. John, great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Yes, Good absolutely. to see you. Great to see you as always. We've already been telling some hilarity uh, before the podcast got started, but I want to jump right in. What a journey for you. And we were talking the other day about how you have did something I certainly couldn't do, which you stayed in the music business. Let's see, my records are correct here. The band gets started in 72, McGuffey Lane in Athens, Ohio. You guys put out, you, you, you move 40,000 units on Paradise Island, which was this, your, basically your, our own label. Your own label, mm-hmm. right? Then that was in 80, 1980 when that happened. Right, okay, that was 80. And then Adco Records, and then you moved to Atlantic later, right? Yeah, it was the same company. Right, yeah. right, right. Just quickly, I know that, and I'm sure you've got a long list, which I want to ask you, you uh, worked with and opened up for Charlie Daniels bands, the Judds, the Allman Brothers, plethora of others. Yeah, we were, we, you know, when we put that first album out and got signed to Adco, we also got signed to the Empire Agency, which had the Allman Brothers, Marshall Tucker Band, Charlie Daniels Band, and uh, Atlanta Rhythm Section. So yeah, oh, badass. Called. Yeah. And so we were always playing with one of those bands on the right, road. It was right. really, it was, you know, fun times when you're in your 20s. <laughs> I, I bet. Well, we were never fortunate enough to, um, but that's, that's how we got our opening gigs too, is either the management company or our uh, booking agency. We had premier talent out of New York City at the time. They were, yeah. pre- they were pretty there big. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but we did a little, as you know, we spent some time on the road longer than any other opening act for the Ramones, which was very interesting. But the one thing I wanted to, the one thing we have in common that I don't think you and I have talked about is the Allman Brothers. My cousin Rick is from Texas and always loved the Allman Brothers and kind of influenced our band on the Allman Brothers. And we... When we got signed to our record deal, John, we didn't have a manager. We had nothing. I did the deal directly with an attorney in New York and the label direct, but we had no manager. So uh, one night, Rosenblatt, who was our A&R guy, the Allman Brothers were playing. The Ohio Center? The Ohio Center. Yeah. Thank you. The Ohio Center. Yeah, we played the, the grand opening to that. We opened up we, we opened up for Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> when Caddyshack was out. <laughs> Sorry so, to interrupt you. No, so it was sold out. It oh, was yeah. sold out. Oh, yeah. It was crazy. And when was that? 19, uh, it was my 30th birthday. Okay. 1981. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So anyway, we um, uh, meet this guy by the name of Tim Collins, and he is the manager for this little band called Aerosmith and another little band called the Allman Brothers. Oh, there you go. So he says, well, you want to, uh, you know, stand on the side of the stage. Now, you, you were actually playing with them. So I got to stand on the side of the stage and watch Dickie Betts play and play and play. And we met with his manager afterwards because he, we were label mates with Aerosmith is why. And, um, um, but never got to play with him. So I'm setting up this story so you can tell yours. Uh, 
And that is, what was it like? I mean, I could, you know, my cousin Rick and I really uh, have a lot, great deal of respect for the Allman Brothers and for Dickie Betts especially and what he's done. What was it like touring and playing with them? Well, you know, we, they, they came to see us at Zach's before we ever got a record deal. The Allman? So, yeah, um, Dickie, Dickie uh, and uh, the Taller Brothers. They all came up, and along with Don Johnson, yeah. the actor. Yeah, yeah. Because was uh, he wearing white? Yeah, Dickie <laughs> and, and him were like uh, Dickie. Don was dating Dickie's secretary or something crazy like that. Okay. So they all came over to my house on Fourth Street when when I lived on Fourth Street. And, yeah. You know, after the gig, right, right, three in the morning, left at daylight. You right, know? right. So right. I, I had got to know him a little bit before that, and then, but but once we started playing with them, it was just like, I mean, I was. I would sit there and watch them from the side every night. Yeah. When they, you know. Yeah. Like was, I was that one night. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it was, I, I was like being in a dream. Playing, right. You know, right, you know, right, 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 right. So how'd they hear about you guys? Because you guys had made such an impact at Zach's. How did they, did they, how'd they hear about that? There was that? a girl from Athens named Mimi Hart. Okay. That was singing background for them. Oh. And, and then we played with them in their, you know, they broke up in the mid 70s or something. And then okay. they had a reunion in 78 or something and it was at legend valley and we were on the it was Ticket. us the pure prairie league and i think molly hatchet and the yeah. Oliver brothers yeah 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 and we were on that show so was so that was the days of, with molly hatchet that was the lead singer danny joe brown he yeah. was still there right yeah that's amazing yeah and i, I saw him throwing his uh uh, the guitar player throwing his strat up near and catching it, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I made a mistake of trying it with my Les Paul. <laughs> it hit me in the shoulder. <laughs> I was down for a couple of weeks, but <laughs> those are a little heavier. Yeah, they're a little they heavier. <laughs> uh, well, people always ask me. Those are some great. Oh, I want one thing. I do want to ask you. Now that you're saying that. So out of all the, I mean, you've been doing this. This is amazing to me. And uh, you've been doing this for 48 years, roughly, Actually, right? Well, I, longer? Spring of uh, full time spring of uh, 1970, May of okay, 1970. So, so 50 years. Yeah. I was going to Ohio University majoring in draft evasion. It was during the World right, you know, right, Vietnam right, right, War. Right. And I got, got a good number. They closed school down when Kent State happened. I came sure. home sitting in my room at my mom's house, twiddling my thumbs. What am I going to do? And some guy called me up, offered me a gig on the road. And I went on the road and I never stopped. No. Kidding. Mm -hmm. Well, I stopped going on the road. Right, right, right. But. but you've never stopped your life being about music yeah. and you making music your life. Yep. Right? And that's amazing. And, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, how'd you go from rock and roll to, to the branding business? And sometimes I flippantly will say, well, you know, I added an R. It wasn't that hard. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and I did a lot of things. I wrote, we were talking about this the other day when we were catching up. I did some, when, you know, when you're broke as an artist, you get creative. You get yeah. even more creative, right? And so I started doing some uh, copyright work for the Columbus Clippers. Also did, uh, we were talking about, I did a, a calling card um, uh, jingle for LCI at the time that my manager, you know, LCI Quest, I think, was the, the brand name. LCI had on two, off of 270, a big... Yeah, uh, LCI. Yeah, I remember. I played, were huge. I played parties they, there, yeah, corporate yeah. parties or something. Yeah, yeah. Like. and they had a racing car. Right up the road from here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I was broke, and we were dropped, and I uh, started doing that. And then I did um, some stuff with Bones, Thugs, and Harmony. I did a little jingle for uh, with Busy Bones. So that was interesting. Really? Yeah, it was very interesting. Wow. 
Yeah. There was a lot of... A um, good friend of mine was uh, manager for uh, another bone. Oh, the other bones. <laughs> uh, That's funny. Jerry Ballin, he, his, yeah. his, his uncle was Jerry, Jerry Heller. Yeah, who yeah. They made, you know, it was the Brian Epstein of, anyway, right. I'm getting, I, I get no, off the subject here. No, it's great. It's great. So I just did, I did that little, I did those little things because I wasn't staying in the business. I was transforming away from the business. I was commercializing my art. You, on the other hand, did this unbelievable thing, in, in my opinion, and that was you just stayed in the business. And if I look at, you know, what you've done, you've created f by my count, and maybe there's more, and that's what I want you to talk to our listeners about. You know, you have the four four brands, if you will, that you're in charge of, really, or you run, operate, and it's McGuffey Lane, it's John, the John Schwab Band, John Schwab Solo, and the the big, the conglomerate, if you will, of what you do is John Schwab Entertainment. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, how all those all these decisions happen, all these things happen in your life, changes. And you were able to craft this way to keep that passion that you have for music alive. Tell us how the hell you did that. Well, you know, from the start, when you're 18, it's, you know, just going on the road is so much fun and exciting. It's just this feeling of freedom. So I just loved it. I, right. we, I was on the road for, uh, you know, five or six years before I came back to town and, and started playing a little bit, um, started getting more interested in writing music and stuff. And I was opening up for McGuffey Lane. And uh, then, you know, so I, I had decided I wasn't going to be in any more bands because, you know. I do. You, know, you, know. you don't need to finish that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> and uh, so I wasn't. So they kept asking me. I was I was opening for them. And and they kept asking me to be in the band. I said, no, nah, I'm, I'm done with bands, you know. And uh, so like one night, Steve Reese, the bass player, just yeah. gets up and starts playing with me on a song. And yeah. next night, Teams would join on harmonica pretty soon. So they're getting in your band. I was in the band. <laughs> and I'm glad. I mean, it was obviously a big thing for me. And then getting the record deal and right. going out on the road. But then when we lost the record deal, you know. Right. I do know it, that too. It got tough in the mid-80s. And then we put out another album of our own, which we had done real well with putting our first one out. And it was actually our second biggest seller. It was a live album, live at the Newport, live yeah. on High Street. Right, yeah. And uh, we actually sold over 50,000 copies of that on our own. Wow. Vinyl. Right. And, and that was our first CD, too. But then then I got the solo deal with Sasapa Records. Right. And I made an album that was a lot of fun and all that. And it had a real good budget. And then when that label went south, right in the middle of... And how long my, was that label around? That was, that was, a, that was a label that was well-funded, so our listeners know. It was a label that was well-funded um, and was started here in Columbus, Ohio, what, mid-80s? Uh, it's 88. It was fall 88. of 88. Okay. And uh, it went south, and I think it was over by about 92. But they had, as we were talking before the podcast, they had um, uh, Mellencamp's drummer. Um, well, he came in to play on my on my On your thing. Album, okay, yeah. okay. That's unbelievable. How, how, did, how did that happen? Uh, the president of the label uh, asked me who I'd like to have on drums, and I you told said, him, <laughs> I said, uh, Kenny Aronoff, yeah, and Aronoff. he went out and got him, you know. <laughs> That's cool. That's right. <laughs> that that works. They also didn't have any budget. For, I mean, they didn't have any cap on my budget. Right. And I ended up spending, you know, you know, that's not a good thing to do with the musician. No, because they, they I, take I it all back. I spent 400. Oh, yeah, they take it back. But 
I wish I would have had that problem. I right. wish it, I wish it would have been a big hit. I, I understand. I understand. But I spent four hundred hours on ten songs. Oh my goodness! Forty hours a song. Yeah. At one hundred and seventy-five dollars an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't have got any money if I had a hit. But so how did you? Uh, just tell me your mindset, because for oh, me, I was, what I was getting to there yeah, was yeah, at, yeah. when that album, when that label went south, Sasapa. I start, I was going forty years old. You know, I'm thinking it's time to maybe change mm-hmm. like, routes. Yeah, and so I, I decided I, I wanted to stay in music, but I didn't want to go on the road anymore. And I was going to try and make a living within a hundred miles of my house. And, sleep and that, in my own so, bed. so that was your that was your theme. Yeah, hundred miles from my house and sleep in my own bed. Yeah, God, I love that. It's another country song. You've written three of them since you walked <laughs> in the door. I just want you to know that. <laughs> so uh, you know, and I was able to do that, and and I did it by a lot. Like, you know, when it first happened, I was going through a divorce. I was going through an IRS audit. Uh, and the, my, the record label went south. I mean, it was just like a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, that's what I bumped into you probably in the. Into in bumpers there, yeah. But our drinking days, yeah. But uh, so I, you know, I, I was doing a lot of different stuff. I was doing jingles. I, you know, I, in fact, I wrote that one song for uh, the Clippers. Yeah, you. I know you're. You are the author of that, and you wrote for and you wrote for Safe Light, Safe Light, right? And, uh, and uh, bunch of different stuff. Yeah, yeah. You've done a lot of that. A lot more work than I ever did at it. So I was doing that. But you were I, searching. Yeah, I mean, well, you just have to. Do as many different things as you can, and, right. and that are associated with your profession in order right. to make a living. Right. At that point, you know. And uh, so, just, how, so how did it conclude when you said hundred mile radius, stay in my bed? Did you say, hmm, I wonder if I can build my personal brand, John Schwab, and begin to promote it? And that's exactly what you did. Yeah. Right? Well, I was doing the I was doing the solo thing, and uh, I got the little party band together, doing a lot of cover tunes and, and some of my originals. Uh-huh. And then I I purchased the name McGuffey Lane in '95. I did not know that. Yeah. And uh, smart. And you know when 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 we were going down in the '80s, <laughs> and uh, I like how your voice just said <laughs> down. down. <laughs> there was I mean, a lot of bad stuff happened. <laughs> we, we had a lot of bad stuff happen in the middle mid '80s. You know, Teams died in a car wreck. Car wreck. Yeah. You know, one of our former members killed himself and murdered his girlfriend. Right. And it, even though he was not in the band anymore, it looked like he was. So right. We were playing for pennies on the dollar. You know, and I, it was we were just dragging the name through the mud. So we broke it up. And then, and whose well, decision was that? That's a hard decision. Well, uh, it was a group decision. Okay, so it was unanimous, or mostly it was democratically unanimous. Yeah, democratically <laughs> unanimous. <laughs> okay, okay. But you know, so when I brought it back, I was I was bound to determine not to overexpose. And the you know, my my goal was to do twenty gigs a year within a hundred miles of the house, you know, yeah. with McGuffey Lane. And yeah, it, we've gotten up to doing like forty to fifty, but it's still. Still working, so. So, that's what's genius to me. You say, I've got a product, if I can for a second, productize you, McGuffey Lane. I don't want to, because one of my questions was going to be, do you feel like you've over-commercialized it? But no, of course not, because you had the plan from the beginning that scarcity would create abundance. Right. Very good. <laughs> and that's, that's what you did. Yeah. That and, sounds like a jingle, maybe not a song, but a jingle. <laughs> right, right. That's one of my branding jingles. Okay. <laughs> But from this scarcity where you said, I'm only going, you know, it's what the Stones have done for years. 
right? Yeah. So it's not about the album. It's about how, how many tour stops will they make? And is that close enough to someplace in Cleveland where I can go see them? Usually, I saw them in the shoe the last time they were through. And it was unbelievable. But to have the foresight to say the brand, because there was no band at the time yet. At that time, the band's defunct. Yes. You, but you have a brand. In fact, I, I really, my plan was this. Somebody offered me a record deal. And they said, but, you know, because I had a, an album, songs I'd written. And they said, well, th we really like this, but we only want to do it as if, if it's under the McGuffey Lane name. And that's one of the albums I brought you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was done with uh, some musicians that were hanging around my studio. Well, I had a studio, too. Did you know that? I did not know that. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. I started that. And Where was that? It uh, started out uh, in my basement. Yeah. And, uh, oh, but then you moved it. I moved no it downtown to where Sasapa was. I moved into the old Sasapa place. Okay. And then we were out on the east side on a big property, That's 13 what acres. You told me about this. Mm -hmm. That's you, you told me that story when we were at Coaches. Okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> a different joint. Uh, okay, so, so... It's amazing we remember any of that conversation. Exactly. But, but you... Th so they said, we just want a record... But we wanted to be. We love we, your what you're doing. But we want to be. We want to be McGuffey Lane because that's the that's, brand. That was what got me right motivated to buy the name at that point. Okay, okay. I wasn't really planning on going out and playing at that point. You know, I just wanted to get the record out. Right, right. Now, so were you using? So who was in that band uh, when you put out that record? Randy Randy Huff was on drums. Who's still with us? Yes. Molly Pocket was on bass. Who I she now she now plays mandolin and acoustic guitar with with McGuffey Lane. I remember uh, Molly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Casey McEwen, who had been in McGuffey Lane, was on keyboards. Okay, and uh, Jim Lynch was on guitar. Tammy Walkup was singing backup. Right, what a band! Yeah, that's awesome. So, but we have all the original members that are surviving now in the band: Terry Fall and. Steve Reese, who were actually just founding members of the band, yeah, and and me. So, of the six original members, three are still alive and right. still are still still on stage. So that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. And so you were just saying though, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You said you originally your intention with with the McGuffey Lane brand, if you will, that that you were building was to do twenty shows. Yeah. Right to keep that scarcity to promote that abundance. And now you're saying you're doing 40? Well, we got up to 40, 45. Okay. I think we're back down, you know. Because you don't want to. Yeah. Because that's too many shows for 100 miles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's unbelievable. When we were talking, oh, I wanted to ask you one other thing. So you're managing that, and then you have John Schwab, and you have John Schwab Band, right? So how do you keep those two brands and bands or those entertainment pieces from either cannibalizing McGuffey Lane or McGuffey Lane cannibalizing that? Is the audience that much different? How do you do that? Well, I, I, we play mostly cover tunes in the John Schwab band. I know, I know that. And I don't really like to do any of the originals because of... But that reason. Yeah. You want to so, say if you want those resources and those jewels, those are McGuffey Lane right. products. So what do you do in a live show? Because I've seen you and people will blurt out because they know you, you as I said to you the other day, you have one hell of a personal brand. They know you. Do you sometimes do the nod and give them? Yeah, a, yeah sometimes. Okay. But, okay. But you know, a lot of times they'll yell out, "People like you," and I'll say, "I know they do, but you didn't have to mention it." You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have quite a few of comebacks yeah. of, of that caliber, right? I don't know. <laughs> have you ever calculated how many gigs you play? Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I I figured an average. 
because it was more back in the early days and yeah. less now. So yeah. an average of about 200 a year. So okay. 200 a year times 50, 50 years, whatever that is. Right. 10,000. 10,000. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. And, you know, I, sometimes I sing that uh, Creedus Clearwater song, If I Only Had a Dollar for Every Song I've Sung. Yeah. And I go, wouldn't be enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's not enough. Because 10,000 times 30 songs a night is only 300,000. You can't no, get tired. That's supposed it. to be a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We, we were also talking earlier about some of your influences. I want to talk to you about that because you and I come from different backgrounds, but from the first time we met one another, there was an alignment. And I don't know if it's about our worldview or what, but you were sharing with me that, you know, some of your influences were Crosby, Steels, uh, Stills, Nash & Young, and the Eagles. And, and who else did you mention the other night? Um, well, I, mean, I think I mentioned the birds the other night, yeah. but then I'm gonna, I have to say the Beatles. Right. You know? And then on the other side, John Prine, is a big influence for me for the country, what I consider country music right. and real country. Yeah, I mean, I sound like an old I know. man when it's I do right. that. But hey, Chris Stapleton does it now. Does he, he? That's what he says. He says it's real country and pop country. Yeah, I'm real, right? But then you know, on Bacharach, David, I loved that, that songwriting team. I mean, they're just fantastic. And and then Frank Sinatra. I yes. mean, that's a wide, diverse area. And, and, it and is. if you see the, the solo or duo show that I do with Molly Pocken, we go from you know, we go from, we'll play a Goo Goo Doll song and then we'll play Sinatra and then we'll play Van Morrison. And it's like sharp left and right turns, right. you know, musically speaking. But it ends up as, a, but it ends up as a confluence back to you and what you dig. Yeah. And that's what's cool. And so when you said that to me the other night when we were talking about it, I just took a note and started thinking about this. When you look at CSN and Y uh, and you compare them to say the Eagles, and just from pure songwriting, I don't know how you can, you know, pick who has a better hook. I'm not going to ask you an elementary question like that. I'm going to ask you something else, and that is this. How would you say that they, they differentiate themselves? I mean, what makes, what's the, what's the pedigree in songwriting that Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young has that maybe uh, is something different than what you would say here is the unique part of, of someone like the Eagles? How do you, in comparing them, what's their advantages? Well, I mean... Uh, you know, I loved all the songwriters in both bands. I really do. Uh, it seems like Crosby, Stills, and Nash were more of the 60s, uh, kind of that more of a hippie. Folk, folk. Hippie, uh, I'd say more hippie than yeah, folk. Yeah. And they, they were a little psychedelic, yeah, too. Yeah, And then the Eagles were more grounded, and their lyrics are so, I mean, so, I mean, lyrically speaking, really, I got to give it to the Eagles. No, they're sophisticated. Yeah. And, and honest and, yeah, emotional. Yeah, yeah, and they and, and the, what about their the, the way they would change? Like they would change the chorus at least like one little line in I the know. chorus every time. And I just, know. Yeah. Do you know how stupid I felt after getting dropped off of Geffen Records? Going listening back to that to the Eagles, and I heard the replacements Westerberg occasionally, and the replacements will take the last chorus and just twist it just a bit, right? So you don't lose the hook, but the meaning of the hook now yeah. changes, right? Now I mean, the fingers pointing at you instead of outwardly. <clears throat> and I said to myself, I didn't even make it long enough to do that. Yeah. <laughs> that little twist. But what about vocally? Harmonies. I mean, if I say the word harmonies, what band comes to mind? Well, Crosby, Stills, and Nash Young come to mind, but I mean, and in the studio, they sounded fantastic. Right. But, you know, I don't know if you ever heard Four Way Street, the live album. No, no, I haven't. No. I don't want to say anything, but right, okay. Yeah, but it, the it Eagles, wasn't the same as the studio. Man, I've seen them three times 
in person in the past right. like 12 years and it's pristine. Really? It's, it's, I mean, it's like listening to a totally slick production. Right, right. And they're not, you know, no, they're, know. they're not it, using it, the tracks. You right, know, right, right. There's not somebody underneath the stage <laughs> right. doing the hard work. That's great. Moving from banding to branding, I always like these uh, musicologists who write little synopsises about the band. Because, you know, in, in, in my day, we had many comparisons, that some of which I liked, and people trying to say, well, what's the toll sound like? Some of which I liked, some of which I didn't. When you sold those 40,000 records, what were people, this is before you had a label, right? What were people saying, oh, well, you know, McGuffey Lane is. What did they call you guys? How did they categorize that? Yeah, well, that was always one of our uh, big problems, you know, because we were kind of like a Southern rock band, but we we're from Ohio. So, so that been, didn't work. You no, know, because I was a country. <laughs> so we, we're mostly, it was called country rock. Right, right. Well, so that's what's funny is they uh, actually, on iTunes, if you go there, that's exactly how they uh, describe you. Who are they? Right, exactly. <laughs> These little musicologists. Yeah. It's probably Beck or somebody. He's Beck's in his underpants right now. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? There's old Batman videos in the yeah. background. I don't know. <laughs> Could have made a Scarlett Johansson in her underwear. Could you? <laughs> <laughs> Something, so somewhere these musicologists are. But so I, I want to get into this because they go on to say, but Nashville wasn't interested. This is a quote. He's talking about McGuffey Lane. Nashville wasn't interested in them until a similarly styled band called Alabama. Yeah, which, you know. Hit the scene. You've read this line, right? Yeah, well, the, the, whole, the whole story when, when our people that were shopping us down there came back said that, they really liked the stuff because we had that first album ready to go for like a year and a half. I know you did. And uh, it was already in the can, done. Yeah. And, and they uh, said, we, we just signed a band. We love this, but we just signed a band called Alabama and we're going to put our money behind them. And that's, you know, what happened. But, you know, when I look back on it, I don't think there's that much similarity between the two bands. So that's right. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about. So when we when I read what their musicologist writes, you know, they bring up this idea that it is, quote, Alabama, Bakersfield, honky tonk, Southern rock, and Nashville pop. Mm -hmm. Well, those are nice marketing terms. Mm -hmm. But when you think about McGuffey Lane and Alabama, because I'm going to bring you up some, you know, bands that we were compared to and what I think about that. Uh, and you have lived with this a long time and had a lot of time to think about it. First of all, do you think that description of Alabama is on point? And how do you think I that different? I don't hear the Bakersfield influence in there. Know. I mean, that's Merle Haggard and Dwight Yoakam. Yeah, but, but it sounds good. Is it, yeah. is it nice? And I, the pop, country pop. I Agreed. Think country pop. Right. What was the other one? Oh, it was um, uh, Nashville pop and Southern rock. Oh, yeah. I think there were more Nashville pop than Southern, Southern rock. rock. We yeah, were closer I, to Southern rock and the, country rock. Right, know? right, right. And so that's how you would say it. Because to me, you know, it's funny. If you had said, when they were down there pitching your record, if you guys had said, actually, you know, we sold 40,000 units and we're from uh, San Antonio, signed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an Ohio brand problem is yeah. what you're saying. It could be an Ohio brand well, and problem. And then the thing always was also, you guys are too rock for country. And then as soon as we got signed, we were too country for rock. And then they actually, the second, the third and fourth album, they actually started a new label in Nashville, just for us, that we were the only act on it. it was called Atlantic America. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. But people always pointed out to me in Nashville, 
Oh, you guys are in Atlantic America. They don't have an office down here, do they? <laughs> no. <laughs> Everybody always pointed out. <laughs> you Ohio boy. We, yeah, we were right. What do they call those when you come south and you, the, the, the Southerners think you're coming down to take advantage of them? Carpetbagger. Carpetbagger. Yeah. That's what you should have named the next record. Yeah, we're carpetbaggers, <laughs> man. Maybe the next album. So if you were, so I love your description of McGuffey Lane and, and how you did that. I mean, we, we, we got pigeonholed too. Of course, we were, I love this. I used to, I swear to God, there were days on the road where I would just say to my cousin, Rick, I wish these hotel windows opened up. He said, why are you frustrated? I said, no, I want to jump out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I'd get off the phone doing an interview and the comparisons were, you know, the toll is, uh, you know, one part Clash, one part Jim Morrison, one part U2. So it just depend their point of view of what you had to defend again. But I would say, well, there, I, I think I wrote the lyrics. You know, I think I make up the poetry every night. I think it's mine. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Can it just be called, this is what the toll does? But, you know, when people are trying to understand something, they go to things they understand of the things that they don't understand, right? right. To make sense of the things they don't understand. I don't understand that. No, I completely <laughs> got it. I did, but just. So my point is, is that you have, so you've just now given us, if you will, the brand recipe of McGuffey Lane, how you would look at it. I did? Yes, you did. Okay, wow. You did. It's just taken you 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> no, if I was really well, shrewd, I'd sell it back to you. Yeah. I'd wait a month or so and say, John, I got a great idea. <laughs> Now, the younger generation would call that, that's called a savage move. Move, savage. That's a new term I want you to be using at all times. Okay. When somebody does something hip, you just say savage. Savage. That's it. Okay. I'll, if I'm you on, say that to Molly. I'm on the bandwagon. You... I'm jumping on. I'll help you do it. <laughs> okay, please. It keeps you and I young. <laughs> a few years from now, we'll go, hey, we started that. Exactly. That was us that started that, man. <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about songwriting. And how you approach it. Because I think it's very interesting. And maybe it's because I only know the one way that I do it. And um, you made a joke to the podcast team here before we started this idea of knee to knee. And I think you and I were having a drink together talking about music. You were mentoring me because your time frame was about a decade ahead yeah. of mine. And I didn't I, realize I was mentoring you. I just thought we were having a drink and talking, you know. <laughs> I wasn't taking copious notes, but I'm sure I bet I, bet I did the next day. Yeah. We were just talking, but a lot of the talks helped me a lot because I was in the midst of a band getting signed and I was barely in Columbus most of the time. We were touring because I believed the way to get there was playing live because I was making up the lyrics every night. So I was trying to use my, my power that, that I was, you know, something I thought I was skilled at, which was not ever writing down a lyric and just playing live. And I would tell you how frustrated, I think some of our, call, our, our conversations were about how frustrated I was in the recording process and the songwriting process. And I told you one night, and I think you asked me, gentlemanly, you asked me, how do you write? And I said, well, my cousin Rick and I get knee to knee, shoulder to shoulder. And we either start with a melody or a piece of poetry, or he's got uh, a little line on the guitar. And we may stay like that without communicating, for a couple hours until we get a groove. And you said to me, and you said it to me like we had just talked, and this was 20 years ago or 25 when you said that to me, and you said to me, my, st my style is a little different. I begin with the idea and we end with the idea. I never had an idea, uh -huh. I had a feeling. You begin with an idea, you quote from you, I noodle around 
and I iterate it. I approve upon it over time. Song. Yeah. Right? Tell me about... And I've heard a lot of uh, other writers say this. Merle Haggard, Paul Simon. I mean, it's it, it, like Merle Haggard called it a little gift from God. Yeah. And you just... I, I do it by myself and just when I hit an idea that I think, oh, that's cool. I work on from there. And uh, sometimes I'll bring in a person if I get stuck on like second verse or something like that. But you're usually, it's you. It's you and the idea, right? Yeah. But then in the in Nashville, that's not the way they do it. They do it. You get together and, and so well, I Well, it's a party. It's a party. <laughs> I tried that whole thing and I just, I was never any good at it. I, I yeah. always felt, uh, uh, you know, suffocated by half of the, you know, I was right. I felt like I, I got to think of something. I got to think of something. Right, like right, that, right, you know? right, right. And instead of just having it come to me. Right, right. And I was ne so I was never good. I, I've had a few good songs written like that, but well, you're going to tell the famous story that you told me that night that I haven't told you in the last couple of days that I want you to tell. And this is the song. So, so our styles are exactly opposite. I need to. I feel like I need to collaborate. Now, I totally get it. When I write copywriting, I want no one around me. I, that's my time to measure those adjectives and know what to say, right? But with music, because to me, that's like my second language. My first language is, you know, the written word. My second language is music. I think certainly for you, your first language is music. Would you agree? Yeah. So I don't start with an idea because I don't have the confidence for that yet. And I don't even know what the best pieces of gold are yet right? I have to kind of sift through it. I'm a 49er. Oh, oh. You're a carpetbagger now. I'm a 49er. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but my point to you is, um, you told me a story that, uh, so I think it's wonderful the way that you get an idea and noodle it. And you like that time. You told me a story that you wrote a song very quickly, early in the morning, right? And, um, was that in the middle of the night? The or one the that, middle of the night. Middle right. Of the I had it all in my head. You did. I had the whole song in my head. And I knew that if I didn't get up and write and it. Write it. So you woke up. And the song we're talking about is. That's Music Man, that one. Yes. Yeah. And I had the whole thing written in my head. And I, done. And I felt myself starting to fall asleep. I had the bridge and everything. And I, if I would have fallen asleep, it would have been gone. It would have been gone. Did you ever hear a story about Keith Richards and Honky Talk Woman? No, give it to me. Oh, he was, you know, typical. Such, you know, he was messed he, up he and was he kept a little up. recorder next to him. Yeah. And so he, he recorded yeah. the lick and, yeah. the, and the hook and the chorus and everything uh, without vocals, you know. But right. And then when he woke up the next morning, he's like, what, what's on here? And he right. didn't even remember it. But it was, he luckily, he was smart enough to record it yeah, next yeah. to the bed. And so when you told me that story, I was like, that's gifted. Now, I uh, don't have your licks. Certainly, but I have a love affair with melody. And so I fell asleep and wrote the melody, the guitar part to Jonathan Toledo and did the same, woke up and sang the guitar part. Okay, I'm not good enough to play it. So I sang it. But so what? I gave it to Rick. Yeah. I sang it and gave it to Rick. <laughs> well, you had the same experience I had then. I did. That's that was your that's, biggest hit. Uh, it? it was. It was. Yeah. It was. Well, we never had a hit. You had hits. Nah, I think it was a hit around here. We charted. We had a local chart stopper. <laughs> so then you told me another story about long time loving long time loving you yeah and you wrote that you actually sang that to me you actually sang the hook to me and you said that came to you within seconds yeah right the, the, the hook came to me and i'm like what was that right that's like when it was like merle Hager calls little gift from god little gift from god i, I gotta work on that right you know? right now did you have the lyric then 
It came it came same time. Now that's a rarity for you, right? Yeah. Usually the lyric is the hardest part. Yeah. And for me, that's where I sometimes begin. Mostly that's where I begin is with the lyric, without even a melody, maybe just a good lyrical thought, right? Yeah. But for you, that happened at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's unbelievable. How's the uh, how's that guitar part go? Can you sing that guitar part in the, or just a the which guitar part? Yeah. Well, just a. Well, just sing us the chorus. Just one oh, line. Really? Okay. Never mind. Oh, no. You'll do it. It's been a long time loving you. A long time learning to know exactly how you feel inside. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I got morning voice. No, that's good. That's good voice. All right. So your writing process, has it ever, ever really changed like that? You said you went to Nashville. Hey, it's called group writing in Nashville. Yeah. And you said no to that. that no, I mean, work. I did a lot of it. And I right. got a lot of songs that, you know, I didn't know how much I felt I contributed to a lot of them. Okay. But my name was still on them. It's like there was one song that we wrote down there when one of the guys in the band was uh, drunk and passed out in the, in the corner. And the next day we said, <laughs> who all was in the room last night? His name's on the... His name's on the song, and it was a single. <laughs> and he, he, his hands couldn't even move. <laughs> uh, but then now, isn't I, that I, called the Nashville Music Union? I think that's what that might be called. I'm uh, kidding, I'm yeah, kidding. probably. I, but now I've got this. Did I tell you about my new writing thing I'm doing now? I was just getting ready to ask oh, okay. you, Dan, Dan, Dan Tyler. Dan Tyler. Who, yeah. So tell tell the listeners about Dan Tyler and how this is a renaissance for you. Yeah. Well, Dan Tyler was a very successful Nashville songwriter back in the 80s. Uh, he had number one hits with the Oak Ridge Boys and uh, Kenny Rogers. Leanna Rhymes, right? Leanna Rhymes. He had yeah. a song on the first Leanna Rhymes album, which right. sold 14 million. I mean, right there. You know? What'd you say? Yeah, Eddie time. Rabbit. Eddie Rabbit. Oh, he's, it's, the list is really long. He, plus, he uh, had a song for one of the girls from ABBA. Unbelievable. Uh, so he's kind of international. He's, he's writing with a guy in Sweden now because of his connection to that. Now, how'd you meet him? He came up to see us when we were shopping for producers with James Stroud. Uh, he came to see us up in some little Bluffton, Ohio. I know James, Bluffton, yeah. Was at some Mennonite college. Yeah. And uh, met him, and we just kind of hit it off. We He welcomed me into his house, and I just could stay at his house, and we'd write some, we, had, we wrote a bunch of songs together. Stayed friend. He's one of the, you know, when you lose the record deal. You lose a lot of you, people. You know how many people, you know, you find out who your true friends are, right? Yeah. Because all of a sudden people aren't calling you back, right? That's right. D divorce, hospital stay, no more record deal. Right. Changes the friendships, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and we became friends. But then, you know, we kind of fell apart and hadn't heard from him for a long time. And he called me back this summer. Uh, wanted to pitch one of our songs to Jimmy Buffett. But, okay, of course, try it. Let's go see what happens. But I don't think anything happened. But then he wanted, wanted to come up with a new way of writing, which just totally gave me freedom. I didn't have to have any lyrics. I just sit down with the guitar. Which is perfect for you. Yeah. That was the thing that strapped you. Oh, yeah. It's, it's got me so excited because I, I just sit down and start singing a, a melody and playing it. Right. And then I send it to him. And if, he, and if it inspires him, and only if it inspires him, He'll put a lyric to it. So far, we've got one, which I think is really good. But. So it's the reverse of Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Yeah. It's a reverse. Exactly. Right? And that's what he was talking about the other day. In fact, he wants me to watch that. you got to watch it. The movie? Yeah. you got to watch it. He just sent me something else from The YouTube. problem is, John, I need you to be alone because you're a sensitive guy like me, and you're going to see the struggles that he goes through. And all I did in the theater 
his ball. Yeah. Because it's beautiful. I mean, it's emotionally beautiful. And their relationship, I really do want, he's, he, he's absolutely right. Dan's right. You have to see that immediately because it'll help you in this relationship. You know, that's great. So, that's well, I, I cry McDonald commercials. So I mean, I, I'm sure. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> you know? It's easy. So have you guys? So so what are you doing as far as this new project? Then right now, are you well? Are you starting to just write those melodies on guitar? Yeah, that's what we. So far, we've got one. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, and I'm you working. send them to him. Yeah, if they move him, he writes a lyric. He sends it back to me, and I try you know try to refine it into the song. Yeah. And, and it's working. now are you giving him a verse, pre-chorus, chorus. How deep do you go before you send off a melody? Uh, that's what I did. I did verse, pre-chorus, chorus. Okay. Because uh, third parts, we can do those all day long. Yeah. Once we know where the song's at. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's going to be in this song. It doesn't need a bridge. Okay. You know, it's, okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, so it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm creatively uh, inspired again, which yeah. I had not been for a long time. Yeah, so how long was Unless that? Unless there was money, like, Lots of it. <laughs> pay, pay, here, here, commission, <laughs> you know, commission song, you know. Yeah, 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 you know. yeah. Now, have you ever done any of that kind of work, the idea of commissioning a song? you I mean, you have in that you've written jingles. Yeah. But have you written a commission song? I wrote song? one for Nationwide Children's Hospital for their uh, website. Yeah, a little small company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's beautiful. Now, how'd you get that? How'd you get that opportunity? You know, Mike Meyer used to be in the Danger Brothers. I know his name. He's, he's, I don't think I've ever met him. He uh, worked at Mills James forever. Yes. Uh, as a producer uh, and a editor and Engineer, yeah, audio he, engineer, and he was working with them. Okay, uh, with uh, Darcy, who was their HR person, and they wanted a song for their awards ceremony. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wrote the, I wrote one with uh, actually Molly and uh, Delin Christian. Oh, Delin. Yeah. Do you know I he uh, I played football with Delin. Really? Yeah, at Centennial. He was in. He graduated in 1980. I graduated in 1981. He played strong safety. Really? Yeah. He was. He was. He could hit. He could hit. Uh, and I, I used to go see him when we would take breaks off the road. I would go see him sometimes. When he he lives play. in Nashville. He came out and played at the Zach's reunion with us last night. Oh, Saturday. did he really? Yeah, he's been doing that for a while. He's going on the cruise with us. Oh, he is? Yeah. That's, that's one of the things I, when I say I won't stay within 100 miles of Columbus, except for yeah. we've been you mean, doing it. You mean on land. Water, you'll go as far as you no, have to go. No, but also, we, we, we <laughs> had some people hire us to play in London, but it was all first class, you know. And, right. And you'll so, do that. Yeah. I just don't want to be in a bus with a bunch of guys I, in a rolling I, frat house. Really, John? Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. I can't figure it out. I think it's the smell, really. Oh, <laughs> uh, shoot. All right. Let's talk a little bit. I want, I want to first know this question because I think your songwriting is exceptional. It's unbelievable. Oh, thank you very much, I but I usually talk about brands to companies and their brand emotionally. That's where I start with a company. It's very emotional. I don't start with, give me your sales data. Let me see your marketing triggers. I start at an emotional level. Wow. I, I do because yeah, I, 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 there's truth it there. It takes me by surprise. I mean, I, but it's cool. That's what the music business taught me, right? Start with where the passion is. Then I can see through the bullshit. And find, right. and find out what the brand wants to do. It's not always about the CEO. It's about what the brand needs to do. So in thinking about that, a brand says to whoever is putting it out there, whether it's Nationwide Children's, whether it's Casper Mattresses, a brand is supposed to make you feel a certain way. And your music, both John Schwab and in McGuffey Lane, certainly has made people feel a certain way, Right. So when people say, oh, that, that's a song, 
Well, I, I view songs as a little bit more complicated than just a song, right? For some people, it's a theme of their life. It's, it's something that gets them through to the next day because they're going through a trying time. When you look back at 50 years of success from banding to branding, perfectly, you define this. What did you want compared to what do you, or what do you think people felt when they heard John Schwab, his music from one of you know, his bands or his entertainment platforms? What do they feel? Well, you know, it's, it's weird, especially when I, when I look at the faces that keep coming to see us, and they've all heard these songs hundreds of times. Right. Maybe uh, thousands, maybe and, a few yeah, of them. And, and they sit there. I mean, I, I know it's doing something. I think it's taking away their pain for a, for a brief period of the day. Because uh, a lot of my crowds getting older, they've experienced a lot of grief and stuff in, the, in their lives at this point. Sure. I think, but, the, and that takes me back to what, you know, I was never thinking about branding. I was just following common sense. Is what I, I was thinking that. Well, how did I brand? I just followed my common sense instinct. And, and people would always say, "Man, you guys look like you're having so much fun on the stage." <laughs> that was back in the seventies, and I, you know, I never forgot that. And I, I'd always look around. If we don't look like we're having fun. We got change. Start having fun. And why aren't we having fun? We're getting paid to play music, right? You know, talk about a gift. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's probably got to be the thing. That's great. Does and so, that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And I love the idea of taking away a moment of pain, right? Yeah. Right. And that is having fun. And music's healing. It is healing. Yeah. And that's great. And I know, you know, when you say that you, that's how you start off with an idea from that idea, you know, generates that and, and, and words. And you're, so you're starting from a feeling. Right? That's, right, you're just well, most of my songs that I've written are my favorite songs. They're not the happy, have fun right. songs. I write a lot of like kind of sad stuff. Right, right. And I say it on stage sometimes. You know, it's a sad song. I, I wrote it. I'm, I'm really, I'm a happy guy. Okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but well, like Clapton, Clapton said um, in an interview, I think some time ago, that uh, without pain, I, I don't. I got to get inspired. And, and that moves my soul sometimes. Right? I just don't know, know if I could go on by, well, with what happened to him. I, I don't I, think I could continue. And I think, well, as you just perfectly said, I think maybe music was a little bit of a healing, right? All right, last topic I'd like to talk to you about, music today. Seth Godin has a um, cool podcast, and he talks about how music has forever changed because the album is gone. The idea of themes and music. I mean... Um, you know, if you want to even talk about Alice Cooper, School's Out. If you want to talk about The Who's, Tommy. or Abbey Road. Abbey Road, right? Yeah. All these themes. And even when you and I were writing albums, which uh, I was in that period between albums and CDs, as of course you were, but the idea that one thing counts, one song counts, and there is no follow-through to an album well, we we thought, I mean, pacing of the album and everything. We, we thought a lot. We put a lot of thought into what cut one, what cut five, you know. Well, that's how you tell a story. Yeah. So so I love how the word story now is the word. What's your story? Well, right? yeah. Everybody, we got to the word story. Well, we had a thing called stories. It was called music and civilizations over time, right? It's what we've always told stories. What do you think about, you know, there's their single. It's up on uh, Spotify. And they're not even signed yet, which is cool. I get what Spotify's doing or iTunes is one off. But what do you think that's done to the depth of music, not having themes and even an album that is unthemed, but the collection of a song is a snapshot in time that's themed? 
How do you feel about that? I'm always still looking for stuff I new stuff I like. Me too. Yeah. And I think the great thing about digital is what it does for distribution. We can listen to one song, simple and easy. We can test market our own songs on Spotify or new songs, yeah. right? And I love that's, that. That's cool. I love the discovery. And in a lot of ways, at this point in life, it's better not to have that whole album because I don't have time to listen to the whole album. Exactly, you know? exactly. And I, and I get that. And so I think there's a ton of positive. As a matter of fact, I think there's more positive, John, than negative. Yeah, I think you might be right. I think, you know, I finally gave it, given into it. I, right, you know, right. My, my stuff's starting to get on Spotify because yep. I'm finally putting it on there, but I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, you didn't. I, I think you're, you're good. I, I, sounds like I'm waffling, but I did. I waffled in life. I, I was fighting Spotify and streaming forever, and now I can't beat them, join them. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and I think that it does allow you and I to see what's going on innovatively in music because I still love it like I'm in it. You, fortunately, are still in it. I just think the one downside is it doesn't allow us to know that third track inside the album that isn't your favorite the first six weeks, but the next six months, it's the most important song on the album. Yeah. And it's your memory maker. It's not the single that makes the memory. You're right, man. When I think about the memory makers, they're albums. They're albums. You know, the albums. You know, the End of the Innocence album with Henley. I mean, that yeah. was my my breakup album when I was going through my divorce. And the right. band was breaking up. And right. Everything you know, was breaking up. Yeah. The songs are the heart, you know, the heart of the matter. And right. New York Minute. I know. For, you know, forgiveness. Uh, you know, I mean, all those things. And then, and like Abby wrote, I mean, and or Sergeant Pepper is the first time I saw lyrics on an album, yeah. and I was mesmerized. You're that's like, what, my God, somebody cares about the words. That's why we <laughs> we, we insisted the album, our first album, have yeah. lyrics. And p people fought us because it was a little bit more expensive. But Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Did I just go completely off the... No, no, that's stuff? great. Well, I almost didn't put the lyrics. I had a reverse problem because we were signed to Geffen. I think Geffen was very well-funded at the time. I mean, they had Robbie Roberts and they had Aerosmith. They had Guns N' Roses. I mean, we were way down on the list. In 87 is when they signed us. In 88, we put out our first record. And then in 91, that's about the time I met you, I think. Yeah. But I was coming from the other direction because I <clears throat> wanted to make the lyrics up every night, except for the choruses. I kept those the same. So I didn't want to put any lyrics on the record. Because you were cha constantly changing. Because, they, yeah, then people would make me stay to that lyric. And I said, but the story's not going to stay the same because I'm not in that mood. I'll get to the chorus. It'll be the same. But I don't, I don't want to get there that way. That was my lead guitar as, as, a, as a lyricist. You know, you talk about being gifted, man. A guy that can make up his own lyrics every night on stage, <laughs> that's just crazy to me, man. You know, you, <laughs> it is to you. You know what rappers do? I mean, you, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You ever tried that? No, yeah. no. No, I need more time to think than that. I need, I need the melody to rehook. I need two lines. I can't, I can't do it, you know, a word within a word. But no, I, I love the challenge of doing that every night. And some nights, to be perfectly honest, I just simply failed. Yeah, well, <laughs> how could you not, man? I mean, gosh. But, but my cousin Rick, he convinced me to put the lyrics on there because, and this was a good argument. Of course, he's an attorney now, so I should have seen it coming. He said to me, Brad, it's a snapshot in time. We don't want to lose it. So that's the only thing they're going to be able to keep. The consumer can't follow us to every single gig mm -hmm. and hear how Anna's going to do this differently or how Jonathan Toledo's going to go through this differently, right? So he said, give them something. Yeah. 
I said, all right, cuz, get the hell out of the studio. <laughs> He's a smart guy, man. That's, that's a good, that's that, a, that's I, like, a, I like that. That's a very good argument. Yes. Uh, Lastly, if there was, I thought about this this morning driving into the studio. If there was a band, and I've not given this any thought myself, I thought about this for you in particular. Oh, I think I forgot to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think you were teed up on this one. But the question is, if you could be in any band that is no longer, it's not around anymore, oh. what, what band would that be? Beatles. Jesus. Yeah. So you've already contemplated oh, I, this. When I was 12 years old and they first came out, I fantasized, because, you know, before the Beatles, all the bands that sang group harmonies always had bass singers. So I was going to be the bass singer. And I, I, was, I think you would be. I was, behind the, uh, <laughs> I was behind the curtain when they were on the Ed Sullivan show singing the bass part behind the curtain because, you know, nobody could be on the stage with those guys. Right, exactly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, a current band that you are not part of or isn't on part of the John Schwab Entertainment, mm. uh, but any current band. Mm. Um, and it doesn't even have to be your instrument. I mean, just to be a part of it. What would that be? Who, who might that be currently that you say? A I, band. I, uh, yeah. Band. Or, or a performer. It could be just I a mean, single I, performer. You know, I, if I could really do what I wanted to do, I, I would just love to do songs new songs and that's what dan and i are trying to write new mm -hmm. songs that sound like the american song songbook you know the, the classic standards from sinatra right. i would love to be on a stage like michael buble is yeah. with, with a orchestra and you know you know 50 pounds skinnier in a tux and <laughs> <laughs> hair and my name be buble <laughs> <laughs> one band that and maybe even a record that you would have loved to produce oh god the rec the records that i admire i wouldn't even want to try and uh, do them better you know, they're, 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 I, is there a record that you think had good songs on it but wasn't produced correctly that you'd like to produce yes, yes. okay good I, I, I don't want to say you don't want to say okay no. okay <laughs> i'm going to give you mine may okay. i okay production wise is the clash cut the crap there were some like this is uh, England, there were a few tracks on there that I thought were unbelievable, but the way it was produced was going the wrong direction. And the drummer knew, I mean, they knew that. If you and I were sitting down having a glass of wine and I asked you in all these years, what's the one thing that music has taught you? What would that one thing be? Can I go back to the uh, other question first? <laughs> you wanna, now you want to produce like seven bands, No, don't you? no. I, I, I want to reproduce several of our albums. That's what I want to do. Okay, okay. Albums okay. that were produced by other producers, yes. I want to do them myself. Is that, is that not one of the most frustrating things oh. in the business? Well, look at it this way. I had Long Time Loving You was the biggest hit from the first album. Love that song. And then we get signed with, uh, of, all, of all places we go for our second album, we have a producer in... Ann Arbor, Michigan. We who made our bones right. on, a, on a high state campus. We go. We should have just seen right there. Why didn't we see? <laughs> and we get up there, and this guy, amazing this blue. guy, nixes all my songs. I had the biggest hit on the first you album. You were probably I, wearing a Buckeyes jersey. I have no songs on the second album. Unbelievable. And I had stuff. And you had. I, I had know. Stuff. I know you have stuff. You have stuff yeah. now. Yeah. I know. But uh, all right. So that so, is your production answer. Yeah, that's your production that's answer. Well, what's the next one? Okay. The, the one thing. The one thing, or one of many things, because 
I'd love to have you back to tell me this a year from now. But what's the one thing, this music business and making music, what you learned from the music business that nothing else in life could have taught you? Uh, from a performance standpoint, I'd say, leave your problems and your attitude at the door. You wow. got to go. Because <sighs> what you're about is not as important as making the audience happy. That's unbelievable. Thank you. That's a great answer. That's true of life too, though. Yeah. It's true of relationship building. It's true of everything. Well, you've now written four songs. <laughs> all you've been on the show. I just want you to know. You can send those off to Dan. He'll put some lyrics down. <laughs> ben, when you want me to show up and ad-lib the entire tune, I'll do that. Yeah, well, I want you to come out and ad-lib something at one of my gigs now. When you talk about branding, that's what we were doing. We didn't even realize it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's how I ended up where I ended up. So anyway, John, great catching up with you. Thank you so much for being on Getting the Brand Back Together. Thank and, you for having me. It was a lot of fun, man. It was a ton of fun. I almost didn't do it, you know? I know. You had to call Steinecker, right? Yeah. You get clearance. <laughs> I did. You had to call Steinecker, the godfather. <laughs> you called the godfather. But you got to tell our listeners, though, the true statement that Steinecker said about the first gig he ever booked was... Was McGuffey Lane. Was McGuffey Lane. Yeah. How much money did he make? Well, he always, he, he never fails to throw me under the bus and tell people he lost money he's, on his no, first show. I think but he's the, made up for it since then. <laughs> I think what he says is, the first band I booked was McGuffey Lane and I lost my ass. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> you sounded just like me when you said, I lost my ass. I've learned, I'm learning. <laughs> anyway, thanks again. Thanks a million for being on. Oh, uh, thanks, man. I had an unbelievable time with you and we'll have you back. This is great fun. All right. Thank you.